And if you're able, can you please stand and turn to Exodus 24? Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in it the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covering the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up onto the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now please flip to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of the creation. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? You can be seated. Thank you, James and Aubrey. It's been a joy to be in fellowship with you. Thank you for reading today. You know, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with the acronym DTR, but I think it's been around a while. Usually two groups, generally in a romantic context, you know, they're dating for a while and they say, we need to DTR this. It means define the relationship. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, who we are is tied to the kind of relationships we, we hold. And at some point, we, we've got to say, you know, where are we at in this? Uh, who are you and who are, am I and, and what's going on here? 
Well, gloriously, you've been coming to Providence for any length of time. You know, we talk about having a relationship with the living God. And you could say, well, what does that mean? Uh, I can think of no better passage, really, of defining the relationship between God and his people than Exodus 24. What does God want? Who's he? Who are we? How do we coexist with one another? What's the plan for the future? I think all these questions, in a way, are answered uh, in this chapter as a conclusion of the covenant code. Now, that word I just said, you might think, you know, well, relationship, how do I conceive of this as I study my Bible? Uh, Scripture, God uses a word for this special relationship between us and him. It's the word covenant. Uh, So important is the word covenant. It's kind of an umbrella term for the whole Bible. Uh, In fact, if you know just a little bit, you open to the table of contents of your Bible, you'll say there's something called an Old Testament and a New Testament, that that word testament is just a Latin version of of the word for covenant, testamentum. See, the whole Bible is about a relationship between the God of the universe and the people that he has redeemed. And so from start to finish, God's saying, uh, in human rebellion, I want to call out a group of people who are going to be mine, they're going to live for me, and through that relationship, all the nations of the world will come to know me. That's what it means to be in a covenant, a, a relationship with God. He's God, and we're his people. Now, one thing that can be, uh, at, at first glance, confusing, though it need not be confusing, something we'll address now, is uh, what, what does God do and what do we do? Who, wh- what kind of roles are there? When it comes to establishing a relationship with people, God always initiates that he's the starter of the covenant. It's not as if somebody, you know, can, you know, a chap comes along one day, say, wouldn't it be great, I can climb my way up to God uh, through my efforts or because I'm such a clever person. No, covenants come to us through God's graciously coming down and selecting us. So if you think about it, uh, this whole book of Exodus we've been in now for months, did the Israelites get chosen because they were a little bit more clever than the other groups on the planet at that time? No. Say maybe they were a bit better looking or they had more potential, humanly speaking. Say no. Israel had none of those. Why did God choose Israel? Out of his grace. God chose people to be his and through that blessing, through that relationship, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the story of the Bible. And so listen to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, this language of covenant of God and his people. So God says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You hear the language of relationship. I've redeemed you. I'll take you to be my people. By the way, that language, what's it remind us of? I'll take you. It's very much like a wedding ceremony, isn't it? I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. God's saying, I take you to be my people. Not because you're, again, better than everybody else, but because I've chosen you in my kindness and in my grace. Now, that being said, God is the initiator of the covenant. There will be a redeemed people, those who are his. Nothing in all history can thwart that. Uh, None of us can, uh, you know, throw God's plan off course and say that is God's plan from start to finish. He's initiated it. He's redeeming a people for himself. That being said, there's another stream that joins that stream. And see if you can tell how it's a little bit different. So take, for example, back in chapter 19 from verse 5. God to the people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Or likewise, take just a glance down at your Bibles, chapter 23, verse 22. But if you carefully obey, that is God's voice, and do all that he says through Moses, God will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, what's different about those second two verses that I read? See, there's a big difference. That's the if. That these verses would make it sound as if there's a part, there's expectations on the part of God's people. I say that's exactly right. The point of this introduction is to say, in our relationship with God, there are covenant promises that come from God that cannot be shaken. Covenant promises from God to the people. But then in return, there are covenant expectations from the people of God. Covenant promises and covenant expectations. The expectations, you'll notice if you think again of Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, notice that the covenant's already in place. If you will indeed obey my voice, God says, and keep my covenant. The covenant's already there. He's already redeemed us. But there's a chance for God's people to obey and come up underneath him. You say, that being said, we press it a bit further here and think about the similarities between how an Israelite at this time would have talked about his or her condition and how a Christian today would talk about their condition. We've been at this a long time now, and I, I, again, I, the teachers in the room tell me that repetition is key, so you, you've heard this before, but the law is given to a redeemed people. That God's law is not a ladder that we try to climb up and say, God, okay, here's your law. Maybe if I do it well enough, I can maybe get to the tippy top of the ladder and try to please you enough. Say the law was never a ladder. It was never a means to getting in. God says, no, I chose you. I elected you. I gave you a new heart. And in light of that, I'm going to shape you to be my people in this relationship. So think of the Israelite. What's he saying? We were in bondage in Egypt. We had no way out. Things were getting worse and worse. But God miraculously, when there was no way that we could save ourselves, opened the sea and brought us out of darkness and, enslave, and, and enslavement, brought us and set our feet on the proper ground and then molded us and shaped us to be his people. Now you think of a Christian. I can talk about myself here. I'd use very similar language. I was doing my own thing. I loved myself. I wasn't interested in God. I certainly didn't want to surrender to Jesus. And I was in a bad place. I was enslaved to my sin. But God, not because I'm a great guy, actually the opposite, I was a rotten guy. God reached down and opened my eyes to the completed work of Jesus. And he exchanged my stony heart for a heart that was tender and open to the things of Jesus. And once I surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior, God then went to work on me and since then has been by his grace, maturing me into a better follower of his. Can you see the similarities? It's the same kind of thing that Exodus, again, why it's the foundational story of God's redemptive history is because it's the story of the church. We had no way out. God in his kindness reached down. He brings us through and then shapes us to be his people. It's exactly the same. So again, God has promised, he's regenerated, he's bought a people for himself, but then it comes to us, these covenant obligations if we obey him, that there's a promise of blessing, that we can please him and come under him and obey him. And when we do that, that God can work in and through us as a church. So this is the relationship as we've been working it through Exodus, God calling a people, 
then shaping the people in that order. The law, not as a bad thing, not as a ladder, but a means by which God would show us who he is and who we are. So what about this defining of the relationship in chapter 24? What we'll do today is notice this ratification ceremony, the ratification of the covenant, then look a bit more at sacrifice and then see what it means to our church here in Avon. So the ratification ceremony, we've heard the last several weeks, well, more than that, about God's law, starting with the Decalogue, and last week, the Covenant Code. So the first part, say, are we going to come to terms, God and the people? You'll notice the first aspect of the ratification process is the public reading of God's word. How do we know what God wants? What does he want for his church? Does Pastor Shaw make it up? You know, now that we have Denny, does Pastor Denny make it up? Uh, Pastor Shaw and Pastor Denny make it up together. Well, how do we know what we're doing? Say, so there's a reason. Every week, uh, we open up the Bible, and we read the Bible. And I'm always shocked, even other churchmen. I've been in churches where they don't read the passage, and I'm shocked. I say, why do you, you know, sometimes, Shaw, you got the people, they're standing four or five minutes. I say, well, I think they can handle it, um, because this is the model that we have. That God says, here are the terms, you're my people. I, I've laid it open to you. We read it and then work it out together. It's shaping us to be who we are. So that's exactly what Moses does, right? He reads the words to the people. He reads God's will. He reads, uh, again, directly what, what God would expect of us. And so we do the same. We follow that model. And you'll notice how the Israelites respond. And this is quite a foreshadow, isn't it? If you look down a couple of uh, ominous verses, 24 and verse 3. The people respond in one voice. The only time, friends, there the church has ever been completely unified, you'll notice in Scripture, right? In one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Oh, pretty big promise there from the people. How about in verse 7? Say they're doubling down. Verse 7, same thing. Moses now has made explicit. All the people have heard the reading of God's law. And all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 613 laws say to love God perfectly and to love neighbor perfectly. That's what God's people are to do. They say, we agree, we will obey. So they hear the plain reading of God's word, they agree to terms, and then you get a scene that is quite strange to us at one level, isn't it? That they set up an altar, the altar is loaded with symbolic meaning, namely the 12 stones for the 12 different tribes of Israel. So they set up an altar, and the altar represents God. And they, they sacrifice. You'll notice they'll make sacrificial offerings of oxen to the Lord. And so the young men in the Israelite camp are instructed to do this, that they chop up uh, a bunch of oxen, and they get all the blood from the oxen in one basin. I know what you're thinking right now. They're like, this guy has the lowest EQ ever because he's talking about a basin of blood on Mother's Day. This guy's got, he's a totally, uh, this is where we are in the liturgy. That's what, I, um, so the uh, basin of blood is there. So the oxen's blood, one place. And what they then do, they take that blood up and they splash some of it on the altar. And then they take the blood, again, same one basin, and they splash it on the people, whether they sprinkle all the people or just the stones representing the people. But you get the idea, a basin of blood after these sacrifices, you sprinkle the altar and you sprinkle the people. Why do they do this? 
See, sacrifice would have been a reminder to the people of the seriousness of making promises to God. See, watching the death of the animal, right, in one sense, the part going to God, they say this is um, on the behalf of the people we've sacrificed, knowing that we're going to fall short, that we are not going to live up to our covenant obligations, or maybe better yet, that if uh, we do fall short of our covenant obligations, that it requires death and blood. That when you lie to God, it costs life. And so what they do is they take the blood of that sacrifice on their behalf and they hand it over to God. Say, this is, this is to make a propitiation, right? To, to make us unite. The, the, the blood represents the death of the animal on behalf of the people. We give that over to God. And in return, the blood, right, that animal symbolizes the life of the animals given to the people as a sign of life. And you could be asking at this point, uh, you know, what a bloody God. I mean, why does he need this? I mean, I thought he knows, he does know all things. He knows our hearts. Why, why this ceremony? I think this is, we Christians get this wrong a lot. That the sacrifices aren't so much a sign to God. They're a visible sign to us. That in the Lord's Supper, it's not as if God's, you know, given us this ritual. He doesn't say, no, he, he's given that as a gift to us to remember who we are and who he is. And so it is with this very graphic scene. You sprinkle the blood, right? The animal goes over to God as a sign on behalf of the people's sin and they're as covenant breakers. And then in return, that same blood sprinkled onto the people as that the life of the animal, that the people would be cleansed and covered by blood. And before I go any further, you know, you think this is very strange. This past Wednesday, I was at, uh, many of you I saw at the, the um, leadership prayer breakfast downtown Cleveland, probably over a thousand people there. They had a man who was high up in the mafia who'd, who'd come to Christ speak, and I was sitting there listening, and at one little point, it's kind of a throwaway comment, he said, when I was pledging my life to the, the mob family, they had me cut my finger, that they bled me there when I made a promise. Say, there's something in our culture that says when you make a significant promise that the shedding of blood and, and of life is uh, very much at stake, and that's why they do this in the ratification ceremony. So there's the plain reading of God's will, the agreement on behalf of the people that they will do as God has asked so that they might shine, so that they might flourish. This deal is ratified through the blood of oxen. And lastly, notice verses 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's two eldest sons, they go up and they encounter God in a rather mysterious scene. There's sapphire pavement and stones, right? The clearness of heaven. And they have fellowship with God and they ate and drank. What do you make of that? Say, so here's why that's there. The best picture, a picture the Bible often uses for the connection between God and his people is one of banqueting. Do you think, what's it like to be in heaven one day? You know, some of us, well, that's going to be really boring to be up there with God. I mean, what could we possibly be doing? Is any, any of the things that we love, are they ever going to be there? The image the Bible always comes back to is that it's going to be like a great wedding feast with God and his people. It symbolizes, you'll notice, time of prosperity, a time of plenty, a time of happiness, satisfaction, merriment, I might dare even say fun. You say, this is a glimpse of the great promise God's people have ultimately of being with him. You know, this week, flip to the end of your Bible. Have a read of, of Revelation 19, 7 to 9. You say, this is kind of the closing image that God is going to dwell with his people. And what image do we get? It's a great wedding banquet. 
So notice the steps. God's redeemed the people. He's called them out of slavery because of his grace. He's given them the law as a gift to them to mold them that they might shine like stars for him. That's been publicly read. The people have agreed to it. They've sealed that covenant in the visual sign of sacrifice to the altar and to the people. And then they've shared in a great banquet God and the representatives of Israel that they might be, again, foreshadowing the life that is to come. It's quite a picture, isn't it? It's a good picture. Say, we as a church, I hope we have a very similar picture. God's redeemed us. He's shaping us by his spirit that we recognize, as we'll see in a moment, there has been a sacrifice on our behalf and that we enjoy communion with God now. There's a glimpse of that now. No matter what's happening, we're satisfied in God. And most of all, what we're looking forward to is that great banquet one day where God dwells with his people in unity and all the people of God come together in a time of bounty and a time of satisfaction. That's the big story of the Bible. So God and his people ratify the covenant. Now, secondly, notice here, what about sacrifice? You have a lot of sacrifice in the Bible. Um, What's going on there? Why is it such a major theme? Can I ask you a question? This is one to sit around in your small group and discuss or at your kitchen table. If you were to answer this question, you've read Exodus, now 24 chapters of it together. Is God close to the people or is he far from the people? The answer to that is, is both. Because that's really the great question, isn't it? If there's a God out there, and he's pure, and he has no fixity of location, that is, God doesn't have a body, he's omnipresent, the one thing we know, God is perfectly holy, he's very much unlike us, he's made everything, one little word can alter the course of the universe. Say God is, we'd say, holy other, he's holy and he's out there, and yet, God wants to dwell with his people. Can you see how these things in Exodus are kind of always going back and forth? Think of the burning bush. God's right there. He's in the burning bush. And yet, you can't really grasp him because he's totally other. He's in the burning bush. How about here? Moses can come up, kind of all the way up. Some of the representatives can come up the mountain, but some can't go so far. And then Moses finally gets to go. And that's, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 24, this kind of odd line about God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. Why would Moses put that in there? You see, well, everybody knew that if you encountered God, you, you couldn't stand You know, you think Isaiah, you encounter God, you fall on your face. He's a holy being, and we're sinners. So this is the great question. How does the God out there, who's totally other, be with his people? And sacrifice is God's gracious gift to us uh, that is on behalf of sinners. Because what sacrifice is, is it forces us to recognize who God is and who he is. is, And it's a visible reminder to us. So when a deal is made in Scripture, anytime there's a deal, you can think of those lines, right? The, back in Genesis 15, where the people promise to God and there's a slaughtering of the animal and God passes through that um, when we break a promise, we say, God, you're my creator. You've called me into relationship with you. And I say no thanks to that, that really that requires my life because I owe my existence to God. And so through the sacrificial system, as the people would see the blood and the death of the animal, um, that they would say, oh my goodness, this is serious. There is a God out there. I am his. I'm I'm, I'm on his time in this life. I can't be plowing around doing my own thing. And so the sacrifices would call people back to this covenant reminder. So it comes to us as a sign. Secondly, 
you ever think how costly the sacrificial system would have been at this time? I mean, not only the actual product, I mean, the, the oxen and the, the animals are very costly. You say, this is your, you know, work a lot to get a new animal, so you've got that kind of cost. From a time standpoint, you're bringing sacrifices regularly, not just one off. From an energy standpoint, going, you know, eventually to the temple, say, sacrifice costs the people cost the people dearly say relationship with god in america say we long ago bonhoeffer called it out didn't he say well it's so cheap to the american mind i got the you know the get out of hell free card and now i do whatever i want to sacrifice to the israelites would have come to to them and say this is serious and this is costly but lastly you'll notice in the sacrifice God provides a means that we might be reconciled to him. That in that sacrifice, what the people are saying is we've sinned, God is holy, and God allows them to offer sacrifices so they might be in a restored relationship with him. So these Old Testament sacrifices, they're pointing forward, right? They're uh, going back to defining the relationship. It kind of is a, a visible reminder of the kind of relationship we have with God, that we are his creatures, we're his people, we don't hold up hold our end of the bargain. But he's made a way through sacrificial substitute. So lastly, I'd say, well, where does that leave us? You go back to the promises of the people. Could you look again at verses 3 and 7? See, the people have the right answer here. Um, God, all the words you've spoken are fair. Because what they point to is loving you and loving our neighbors. So the people have the right answer. They agree. The problem with that is no human in our sinfulness can love God perfectly and love our neighbor perfectly. And as James says, James, New Testament book, James 2.10, he says, if you break one of the laws, you break all the law. You say, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, if you murder somebody and you're, you know, they're taking you to court and you say, yeah, but I've never stolen anything and I've never driven a mile over the, the, you know, the speed limit, say, that doesn't matter. You're a lawbreaker. Same thing with God's goal. Well, I've kept most of it. Guess what? You're a lawbreaker. You've not kept God's law perfectly. You've not loved him perfectly. We've not loved others perfectly. And this is why Paul, you'll notice if you have time this week, read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He goes right to this passage, right to Exodus 20 to 23, and he calls it a ministry of death or a ministry of condemnation. He uses those words. Now we can say, well, is the law bad? Did God make a mistake? He gave us this evil law. It's sinful. No. What the law does, remember, it's like a mirror. That's why it's a ministry of condemnation because I know the right answer. God, you've redeemed me. I'm going to keep all of your commands. Absolutely, I will. I want to love you and love people. And as soon as that comes out of my mouth, if, if I'm honest, I realize I'm going to struggle. So I, too, will need a sacrifice, won't I? I'll need something I want to acknowledge to God that I'm a sinner and that he's a savior and a redeemer. What would God have for us? We don't sacrifice animals anymore. In fact, Jewish people don't even offer sacrifices anymore. What gives? Uh, what has God provided? Well, you know from our second reading, don't you? <laughs> that the book of Hebrews is so incredibly important for understanding God's law. Did you hear those words? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? Say, in the old times, God gave us the gift of sacrifice to remind us of our sinfulness, to point to God's holiness, to show that we need to understand the nature of our relationship. But in last times, God's made a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to keep sacrificing animals and some denominations keep sacrificing Jesus. No, it's a once-for-all. God put forth his son so that we as covenant breakers might still have reunion and reconciliation with him. We say later in Hebrews chapter 9, again, more comments directly on this passage, but God provided a once-for-all sacrifice on behalf of his people that we might be right with him, recognizing our sin and his holiness. So I ask you, I end where I start. Define the relationship. Say, you're not a Christian today. You came because it's Mother's Day. We always have non-Christians. It amazes, I think, two or two and a half years. I always know afterwards there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus in a personal way. We're really glad you're at church today. Thank God has brought you here. And you're thinking about this. Is there a God out there? How do I know how I should live with him? Has he spoken? What's it mean to love him perfectly and to love my neighbor perfectly? Is it possible that God's laid out a covenant and in fact I've not lived up to it, but God's made a way for me to be right with him? So I pray today you think very carefully about the Lord Jesus. You can know God. You can be in a relationship with him. You can come into a covenant family. That is the church. You can do that as you surrender to Christ, recognizing, recognizing the terms of the deal and that God has not broken his end, but we've broken ours. You do that, say, Lord, I do. I've not loved you perfectly, not loved my neighbor perfectly. I need Jesus in a serious way. I was lost. I want to be found. I was enslaved to myself. There's no way I can get out. But God will enter in and renew you and restore you and bring you into his fold and to use you for his glory. Will you surrender to Jesus today? You know, church family, what about us in this age of talk so much about identity? To define the relationship with God, you could say it this way, who are you? Somebody asks you that, who are you? What do you do? How many things we might say? Well, I'm a student. Today, I'm, I'm a mother. Wonderful thing to be a mother. I'm an electrician, need electricians. I'm a teacher, fantastic. I'm middle management at a big company. All the things we could say, who really are you? Say, so may we be quick to say, we're the covenant family of God. That we're the people God's called out not because we're great, but because he's been kind to us. And in the short time we have to be the church, he's shaping us that as we yield to him and surrender to him, that we'd give our church family to him, that he would use us. What a great time in millennia, really, millennia of God's covenant family. What a great time to be the church. So we could be scared and intimidated and angry, so I think that'd be a great waste. Or we can say, wait, we're the covenant community of God. We're the church. God's called us out. Nothing in all history can change that plan. May we obey him and come underneath him and yield ourselves to those covenant blessings and by his grace, maybe, maybe just someone as a result of the manifold witness of this church that eternity would be changed for them as they would recognize Jesus as the true king. Church, there's a great charge today. Whatever you make of church, it's most certainly not boring. It's a great adventure. There's a great task. 
the times are very exciting to be a follower of King Jesus. May we not shy away from that. May we remember our identity, remember what kind of relationship we are in, and live for his glory alone. So I'll pray and invite Ian and the team back up. Father, thank you so much for making it clear. I know a lot of people think of you as confusing. A theology, how hard, how ethereal. Not so. That you've spoken plainly. I will take you to be my people. I have redeemed you. I will shape you and mold you. Lord, we know that we're covenant breakers. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So I think it's abundantly clear to all of us if anyone in this room knew who we really are, we'd be very embarrassed about that. But you know who we are. So we thank you for providing a way through sacrifice, not the repetition of sacrifices that the Israelites had to do to be right with you, but rather the sacrifice of Jesus once for all that in the ratification of this covenant that we're made whole, that we can know you, we can be confident before you as we're covered in the blood of Jesus. And again, Lord, for anyone here in this Mother's Day, feeling discouraged by the state of things or the finitude of life or just, quite frankly, the disappointing things uh, when it comes to material, wherever there's a person here who's in that place, I pray that we would lay down our pride and we would surrender to Christ Jesus as King. And to see, Lord, this isn't a stale commitment, but rather it's a life of activity, a life of obedience, a life of mission. And may we as a church be diligent in this time, seeking after you, obeying you, opening ourselves up to your blessing. We thank you for the privilege of being your covenant family, this local covenant community. Surrender this church and ourselves to you afresh for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, let's stand and respond.